Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Stand Up For The Truth, a very important topic we have to discuss today with a very special guest, and I can't wait to get into this, uh, the, uh, the topic of mental illness, what the Bible says about people that have dealt with these things on, on various levels, and then Christians and our misconceptions about mental illness, and uh, so much more with today's guest. Father in heaven, we need you every day. We need wisdom more and more, Lord, and um, help us to, for those of us who know the Word of God, help us to apply it to everyday life and to see our culture and our country and the world through the lens of the Bible, that biblical perspective. Lord, uh, speak to our hearts today and help us to understand people around us who may be struggling and maybe they wouldn't cry out for help, but help us to be sensitive to some of the symptoms that maybe they're dealing with when it comes to depression, loneliness, hopelessness. Oh God, help us to be a people of hope. Help us to preach your word in all of its truth and boldness, but Lord, help us to point them to the hope of Christ. And we thank you for that hope that is an anchor to our soul. We love you, Father. We thank you for another opportunity to talk about things that matter, and we lift up this hour and this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's special guest, Dr. Ragi Gurgis. He's a doctor and associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. His book, which I can't wait to get into, it's called On Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry, Exploring Mental Illness in the Bible. And Dr. Gerges hopes to help change some misconceptions that have historically pervaded Christianity by educating both laity and clergy about serious mental illness. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, get in this together and just give you some information that you haven't thought of or haven't heard before, and also examine things from the biblical accounts and what we can maybe perceive or pick up from what people in the Bible have gone through. Dr. Gerges, thank you so much for joining us on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you, David. I, I really appreciate being on the show, and uh, this is a very nice prayer. Well, thank you, sir. Um, we want to address something before we get into the book um, we've talked a little bit off and on about this in the last several months on this podcast, the fact that depression, loneliness, hopelessness, and even suicide attempts have skyrocketed, I think to unprecedented levels, but I could be wrong. I'm not an expert on that. Since the coronavirus kind of started invading, so to speak, uh, America, and the shutdowns were put in place, people were isolating, human beings were not meant to be alone or isolate plus not to be able to be with our loved ones, and then if you're Christian, not be able to be with brothers and sisters, family in Christ that can encourage you. And uh, I would love to get your, your expert take on that because I know that you've uh, studied and we've got a lot of background on what this does in regarding to mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really good point, and it's very relevant to, to the book, which, which the goal is to decrease stigma in the, the Christian community in particular, but of course mental health is and mental illness is relevant to all communities. Uh, just like you said, the next you know, pandemic, so to speak, is going to be the mental health pandemic. Mm. Uh, as a result of everything that's happened during the coronavirus pandemic, in part related to isolation, in part related to the trauma of experiencing illness in oneself or one's you know, family members or friends, and then, of course, uh, ex uh, related to if one is a if one is a, um, a frontline health worker, related to seeing so many people, you know, die and be on ventilators and those types of things, which is very traumatizing. And you know, we've seen it there. You know, if we even in the, the popular media, we've read the stories of the doctors suiciding. There was the emergency room physician at Columbia who suicided a, a few weeks ago. That was very tragic, and that's mm. been happening. So, this is going to be the next pandemic. Uh, the mental health community is definitely preparing for it. 
Well, and we'll do what we can. Yes, and we understand, and we talked a little bit before we got on the air this morning, and people, whether you're Christian or not, we are in this world. As Christians, we are not of this world, but we still live in this physical place with so many things that, that impact our lives and our emotions and our health, whether that be your upbringing or whether that be something chemical when it comes to depression or other things. So could you please encourage some of our Christian listen actually most people that listen to this podcast are believers in Christ, but encourage them that um, they don't need to be ashamed of these emotions or, or mental illnesses they may be dealing with. Definitely not. Again, that's why I wrote the book, and that's really the point of the book. People should not be ashamed about it. As we're going to discuss, mental illnesses is, 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 is pervasive in humanity. Uh, it, it even attacked or was experienced by many of the people in the Bible, some of the greatest prophets, and that's what we're going to get into later. And so no one should be ashamed of it. I mean, God created the world and everything in the world, so obviously, you know, we partake of that, and, and that's fine. You know, God created science. God created medicine. God created pathophysiology and the human body and anatomy and biochemistry and everything. And so everything that applies to, you know, any portion of the population applies to us too, including mental illness, which is simply, you know, biological and is part of nature. The book is called On Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry and Exploring Mental Illness in the Bible. I don't know if I've seen or heard of a book similar to this. I'm sure there are probably some out there maybe, but uh, what prompted you to write it in the first place? Thank you. You know, I've been wanting to write this for a long time, and my father really wanted me to write it. I belong to a relatively, you know, traditional uh, religion, religion within within Christianity. I'm an Orthodox Christian, and so, you know, I think this is pretty pervasive and consistent among the Christian religions, but ours is also very kind of traditional and Orthodox, and there are a lot of stories about people, especially from kind of back in the day, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years ago, who, you know, were described as being demon possessed or conducting exorcisms and whatnot, and you know, you know, I'm a person of science. I understand that those sorts of things don't necessarily exist, and more importantly, I understand that believing too much in those sorts of things can stigmatize mental illness and mm. kind of distract people from realizing what mental illness is, and that ultimately, getting help for themselves or their friends or their family members or whomever. And so, it took a little while for me to develop one even just the time, but also the the expertise to be able to write a book like this. Not so much the expertise in psychiatry, obviously, but the expertise in, or at least a basic understanding of theology. Several years before I wrote the book, I spent a lot more time reading about theology and learning about theology to give me at least, again, a basic understanding with which to write the book. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that um, I understand you, you saying, and from the book's perspective, that there are some instances of demon possession and exorcisms, as described in the Bible, they could, in 2020, this year, uh, be better explained as untreated mental illness. Some of your chapters uh, very fascinating as you talk about Bible characters and people that actually lived. Uh, King Saul, uh, you talk about his psychotic depression. Um, Moses and the consequence of disobedience to God. King David feigns psychosis. Uh, Jonah's narcissism and severe depression. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's psychotic break and redemption. And uh, there's so many more, um, the exorcism, so to speak, that uh, Jesus performed at the synagogue in Capernaum, which we'll get to uh, one at a time. But chapter two is a brief summary of serious mental illness. What would be one or two of the points, if you could please uh, share with our listeners, that people maybe don't know or aren't aware of when it comes to a, a summary of serious mental illness? Sure, this is very important, and that's exactly why I put that chapter early on. Uh, serious mental illness is actually a, a specific phrase. You know, any type of mental illness can be very severe. Anxiety disorders and, you know, like OCD and whatnot can be very serious. Uh, technically, they're not considered among the serious mental illnesses, which is, again, like a proper term, which really describes conditions that, you know, in the simplest sense are associated with some level of psychosis, you know, break from reality, uh, more specifically delusions, thoughts that 
one believes that are not true. For example, the FBI is out to get me when they aren't. I'm God. You know, that's a delusion. Hallucinations, a perceptual experience, hearing something that isn't really there, often your name being called, that's a hallucination. That's a perceptual experience. Or such severe disorganization of speech or behavior. And these are the people whom we see on the street who are filthy, unkempt, and not because of, you know, anything except for mental illness. What would be one of the biggest misconceptions that Christians have about severe mental illness? I would say, and, you know, I ask everyone this. I love hearing what other people think, and I want to ask you also. I'll, I'll share what sure. I think, and I'd love to hear from you also. I think it's that I think it's that Christians think because we are saved and we have the Holy Spirit in us and we know God now, we're born again. I think a lot of people think we shouldn't have the the problems and struggles that we had before we came to Christ. I, I think you basically hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the main misconceptions is that people think that mental illness is related to. I, I think what you're saying is basically that a moral weakness. Mm-hmm. I think is that is that what you're getting at? So moral weakness, oftentimes, you know, just volition or bad behavior. Uh, but I think immorality, especially among a Christian uh, a Christian group, immorality, I think, is probably the number one misconception that people have. And so what I tell people, as I wrote in the book, but what I tell people is that one c- should think about mental illness the way that people think about diabetes or hypertension, high blood pressure. So people, I think, generally understand that diabetes and high blood pressure are, or cancer are, are you know, quote-unquote biological, genetic, familial, her- hereditary, whatnot. I wonder what people would say if I were to tell them that mental illness, such as any psychotic disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, autism, are much more, quote-unquote, biological or genetic or heritable than diabetes or high blood pressure or many types of cancer, people are actually surprised. And that's not esoterica or not just, you know, something that a psychiatrist who's obviously very biased would say. That's, that's, that's standard. I mean, this is, this is work that was very objectively proven. And how I describe it to people is, for example, diabetes, and I'm primarily talking about the main type of diabetes, diabetes type 2, diabetes type 1 is, is almost exclusively genetic. But most part, types of diabetes and most types of high blood pressure are almost exclusively environmental. Like, it's, you know, if one were to live a very healthy, physically healthy life, exercise, eat well, uh, they can pretty much guarantee that they're not going to develop any, any type of hypertension or high cholesterol or, or diabetes. That's virtually impossible with mental illness. You cannot do that. Mm. If you are born with a vulnerability, genetic or otherwise, to mental illness, chances are you're going to get it. Our goal is to prevent that, of course, and cure it, and hopefully we're not far away from and prevent it. Hopefully we're not far away from that. Mm-hmm. But that's the truth. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Ragi Gurgis, an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. And before we get into some Bible characters uh, that you mention in your book, I want to ask you about medications. And some Christians have the stigma that we shouldn't need medication if we have the power of God. What would you say to encourage them that you know, if some people really need to take something that can actually help? Thank you. This is, again, what it comes down to. Even if people don't want to accept mental illness, the, the kind of the, the rubber meets the road when we talk about treatment. And when rejecting treatment is the biggest problem, especially medications. Mm. I, I, I use this diabetes high blood pressure analogy all the time. That's, that's what I tell them. I tell them, would you, would you re- reject medications for diabetes and high blood pressure? Would you tell someone that they should just will themselves out of diabetes or high blood pressure? That's good. I mean, we have to, we have to remember our bodies are still uh, dealing with all kinds of things, and our spirit, of course, is renewed, being renewed every day, the Bible says. Um, I now want to jump into chapter 4. I found this to be fascinating, and... King Saul's psychotic depression. Um, you talk about his affection for David that quickly turned to jealousy and then outright paranoia. And it just it was a fascinating read as you went back to First uh, Samuel. Um, and I would love for you just to share more of your thoughts on how that was actually something that he could have dealt with for most of his life and not just when he turned on David. Thank you. There are many... I mean, the story of King Saul and David and his depression and his psychotic depression, 
uh, is so well chronicled in the Bible. There's so much we can say about We've spent the whole time and much more talking about that. But, <laughs> you know, in a nutshell, I think people generally accept that King Saul had some sort of, you know, depression, depressive personality, melancholia. People know how he would ask David to play the, um, I, I believe, the harp for him, mm-hmm. and that would make him feel better. So people have a sense that King Saul had, you know, this pretty substantial depression. David eventually became anointed as the next king of Israel. He defeated Goliath. He became very popular and prominent. King Saul became very jealous. Uh, eventually, that jealousy turned into what we describe as persecutory delusions or paranoia. I'll give an example. So it got to the point, as people know, that King Saul began chasing after David, and he wanted to kill him. So that's pretty severe. That goes beyond just jealousy. Uh, His delusions were clearly apparent when, in one story, he went to one of the neighboring towns or villages, and the leader there was uh, speaking with King Saul. King Saul had approached him, and King Saul accused him. He didn't ask him. He accused him of harboring David. And the quote, I put the quote in the book, I don't remember the quote exactly right now, but basically what this town leader said to King Saul was, that is not based in reality. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Why are you accusing me of this? That is the definition of a persecutory delusion. King Saul was depressed, delusional, he had a psychotic depression. And isn't it true that at some points uh, King Saul was actually projecting what he had on David or others, like David's trying to kill me. Wasn't he doing that? That's incredible. Uh, I I forget if that's how I describe it in the book, but (laughs) that is exactly the definition of, you know, the the defense mechanism, we call it, of what produces a delusion. It's projection, where you project onto someone else what you're thinking. (laughs) So (laughs) he was projecting onto David what he was thinking, meaning he was thinking, like you said, that David wanted to kill him and, you know, take over his kingdom, whatever, when he was actually the one who wanted to kill David. That is fascinating because, I mean, I'm not saying uh, people in America, leaders, uh, the media, people on the left are psychotic, but uh, they sure do use that tactic of projection. Um, It's just fascinating how that has become like a political uh, weapon. Um, we are speaking with Dr. Ragi Gurgis. We've got a couple minutes before we take our first break. And uh, before we go on, I do want to talk about, since we talked about Saul, I do want to talk about uh, David. But is there anything you wanted to uh, wrap up with as far as that chapter four on Saul? Any other thoughts? I think you got it. I think the main thing is, again, when we think about the severity of mental illness and whether something is, you know, psychotic, counts as serious mental illness, we also think about its effect on someone's life. So just to kind of hammer home the point. It, it got King Saul became so, I mean, just to show how s- severe his situation was, it became so severe that he was going against his own children. He wanted to kill his own children. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just kind of a, you know, that just, you know, clarifies and reinforces how severe this really was. He wasn't kind of just jealous. He was really <laughs> delusional. Yes, delusional. You have to be delusional to want to kill your, your children. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, we are going to take a break. I do want to come back and ask you uh, about David and so much more. Um, the book is called On Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry, Ex- Exploring Mental Illness in the Bible. And just want to let you guys know who are listening that it's not this massive, big volume, uh, you know, that you have to carry in, in a suitcase. It's it's like around 112 pages or something like that. And it's not the—and I appreciate your the way you wrote it, Dr. Gerges, that it's not over people's heads. It's, it's very much for the layperson. So I thank you, and I thank you for sending me a copy. Um, and it's available on Amazon. Where else can people get the book? Amazon is a great way to buy it. They could also go to the publisher's website, Whipped and Stock, and they could find it there. Good, It's on Goodreads. Goodreads. And in general, my name is so unique, uh, Roggy Gerges. <laughs> just typing in my name and typing something in like Satan or Psychiatry <laughs> probably bring them to the book. All right. We will put the link to Amazon and more information on the book in today's podcast notes at StandUpForTheTruth.com. So when we come back, a whole lot more with Dr. Rocky Gerges. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. 
Our guest today, Dr. Raghi Gurgis, Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University, and the book is called On Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry. We're going through biblical characters and talking about people who actually lived, who actually there in history had these dealings with other people and had issues with either depression or mental illness. Um, David is one, my goodness. Dr. Gurgis, before we jump into this chapter, King David feigns psychosis. I would just love to get your thoughts on the Psalms that David wrote. It just seems like sometimes they were all over the place at sometimes praising God and recognizing his majesty and his love for, for us. And then at other times, just his almost his hatred toward his enemies, like bash their teeth in, I think I'm paraphrasing one of the Psalms. But I would love to get your take on David's, really his heart and his struggle of, of maybe extremes, perhaps. Uh, thank you very much. So th- th- this is a great question, and the Psalms are amazing. They really allow us to peer into not just what David and I guess a few others were thinking, but how, what they were feeling, how vulnerable they could be. I remind people as they struggle with maybe more extreme emotions and sometimes on the you know the more quote-unquote negative side that uh, as one of our church leaders said um, – uh, before he passed a few years ago, God owns all human emotions. Uh, he owns them. He created human emotions. Mm-hmm. And so that is why people like, you know, among the greatest prophets in the, you know, of all time, again, like David and whatnot, felt comfortable sharing these types, types of things. They obviously understood the, the greatness and the, the omnipotence of God and that God created these emotions. It's okay for us to to share them, I mean, with the appropriate people, but to share them in, in King David's case with God or otherwise. And ourselves, if we're talking about mental illness, with uh, a spiritual leader or our physicians or our family or with anyone. I want to jump ahead uh, in Chapter 5 when uh, it talks about David actually feigning uh, psychosis. Very fascinating that he was, and maybe at sometimes actually very, very fearful, struggling with with that, as far as, you know, Saul, here's the king and his men chasing David down all over the place like a wild animal. And on page 33, it says, Together this information suggests, this account in the Bible, uh, that David very accurately mimicked psychosis. And uh, I would love for you to just share, he actually must have known or seen people in his life that, that actually had certain uh, behaviors, and he was able to mimic them to make them believe that he was psychotic. Is that correct? He must have, like Moses, like how Moses described it, described you know mental illness in chapter three. King David, uh, in, in in as I describe in this chapter, so very well mimicked what someone with again a very severely um, ill person and untreated person would act like. Uh, the only way for him to do that would have been obviously to see it, and then for other people to, in this case, King Ashish of Gath, to so readily recognize David's behavior and what was going on, suggests that this sort of behavior was not uncommon. In fact, most people probably recognized it. It was probably almost as common as today, and certainly similar in, in nature and behavior and presentation and phenomenology. In fact, the words that King Ashish used when King, uh, when David, not a king at the time, but when, when David went to the town as he was trying to escape Saul and elicit pity and, and, and sympathy from King Ashish so that he wouldn't necessarily turn him over to Saul, was, quote, look, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this, etc.? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it, you know, you couldn't, I, I you can almost imagine someone saying this today, and again, as I write in the chapter, yes. this also unfortunately demonstrates the timelessness of stigma, but nevertheless, this also helps us understand how, how again, timeless mental illness is. No shortage of madmen. Yes, that is very relevant to today, I think, and, and I'm not talking about people that are uh, seriously dealing with uh, mental illnesses. I'm talking about people that maybe project it or, or feign it, perhaps as, as David did. Um, I want to jump ahead to chapter 6. Um, you talk about Jonah. Oh, my goodness. Some of us can really relate, Dr. Gerges, because here Jonah was sent to the people of Nineveh to, to prophesy to them to repent. And how, how much can we relate to, in our hearts, if we were to admit it, not wanting people to repent so that God would judge them, right? Well, people, they repented the city of Nineveh, which was a massive, big city at that time, 
And then Jonah was angry that they repented. So talk to us about what do you mean by his narcissism and his severe depression? Thank you. I, I, again, you, you really have very kind of granular understanding of, of what I read in these types of issues when you mentioned how we could probably identify with Jonah about how we become angry that other people who, you know, maybe in our own minds aren't as, you know, don't behave in a certain way, you know, we, we feel it's not, you know, fair, etc., that they would be saved to repent. We can definitely identify in that way. The other way I was going to say we can identify is, again, with his narcissism, Jonah's narcissism. Uh, in, in Jonah's case, it's very, it's very obvious. It's also very obvious with us. But in Jonah's case, the narcissism is related to the fact that he told God, uh, basically, that he knew better than God. He knew that God would forgive the Ninevites without him going. So what was the point of him going? And so he suggested to God that, you know, God's suggestion for how to deal with the Ninevites wasn't as good as his suggestion. So thinking that God is wrong is, you know, I mean, that's the height of narcissism. And I'm, I'm ultimately, in this case, it's also, you know, it's, it's sinful, but that, that's narcissism. And while we can identify with, you know, feeling upset that other people who act in certain ways maybe are, are saved as we are, if we believe and we accept it, uh, we also are narcissistic and tell God that he is wrong every time we mm-hmm. you know, go against what he you know, tells us to do and what we know we should do. It's very interesting, um, that book ends. I, I call it, uh, you know, Jonah had to go to Shamu University <laughs> in the belly of the whale or the big fish in order to learn that he better obey God. And I find it interesting that he's sitting under this tree at the end wanting to die. Um, we don't want to make fun of that sentiment that some people, when life doesn't go the way they expect it or want it to go, we feel like, well, what's the use? Uh, so we're not really mocking that. We were just saying, wow, God, in his mercy, um, allowed them to repent and did not destroy the city, which was a major city at that time, about 120,000, if I remember correctly. That's a big city. And they repented and he did not destroy it. But Jonah was so angry. Um, I would imagine a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, I mean, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He wrote lamentations. A lot of them dealt with these emotions as well. I know this is not specifically in your book, Dr. Gerges, but I would just love to get your, your thoughts on some of these prophets that had to do an extremely difficult job. They had to go against the grain and prophesy God is going to judge, send his judgment if you don't repent. Yeah, I think I, think I, would, I would say that this is very similar to uh, what David described. This is why the Psalms are so amazing. This is kind of what David described in Psalms. These are, this is basically a, a, a kind of a summation or summary log of, of all the exper- the emotional experiences and trauma and difficulties he went through, similar to Jeremiah and other people, as, as they either led Israel or preached to certain people or did things that they didn't want to do or they didn't understand. And that's why, and from that came, came books like Psalms and Lamentations and other great books like those. And again, they just, you know, make clear to us uh, one, that, you know, it's okay for us to have similar emotions. That's part of the human experience. These are in the Bible, so obviously they're important. And again, God owns all human emotions. He created us to have these emotions. Mm. We are very emotional beings, and uh, you're right. Absolutely, God created us this way. I think there comes a time where we have to take responsibility and uh, exhibit the fruit of self-control and patience and not... You just let our emotions spew everywhere, but and, and that is different between the individuals. But I would like to jump over to chapter 7, because this is fascinating, Nebuchadnezzar's psychotic breakdown. Um, but then he was redeemed at the end. But he was crawling on all fours like a wild animal for I don't remember how long. But God, did God curse him? Did he bring this um, mental illness on Nebuchadnezzar, or how do you read into that? I know you've got a lot of information on this uh, schizophrenia in your chapter. Um, I'd love for you to share that, Dr. Gerges. Sure. Uh, thank you. Well, about your question of how this his mental illness came to be, I don't know whether God directly afflicted Nebuchadnezzar or whether it developed for other reasons. I honestly don't know. Certainly, mm-hmm. God could, you know, could could have afflicted him or not. I, I don't know. 
I'm not I'm not sure the Bible is clear enough about that. But either way, what ended up happening again? Nebuchadnezzar, a great a great leader of Babylon, he developed this psychotic break. His behavior was very consistent with again very serious untreated mental illness. Nowadays, although we still have these people, we have a lot less of them because the medications we have, which mm-hmm. are so amazing, even if they're not perfect for a lot of people. But in a time where there were no medications and people could just deteriorate and deteriorate, there were probably a lot of people, as I say in the book, on the outskirts of Babylon, in the you know woods and whatnot, and in the fields, who were living like Nebuchadnezzar, walking on all fours and eating grass and mm. living in a very severe way, uh, which is very sad, obviously. Mm. He after I think about seven years, recovered in some way. I put a potential theory in my book for how that could have happened. There are plants in the area that actually were used about 100 years ago as prototypical antipsychotic medications, mm. in, in this case, the Rewolfa alkaloids. But, you know, God also could have just cured him if he wanted. I mean, that, that's totally something God could have done. The point, though, of course, in the chapter is that Again, mental illness was very phenomenologically, like symptom-wise, very similar back in biblical times, and and that was, of course, the main the main purpose of the of this chapter. So much, uh, there are just so many fascinating uh, things to, to take away from this. And I appreciate you writing on not only the topic but the specific men in the Bible and. Uh, on Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry is the name of the book. Dr. Ragi Gurgis from Columbia University. I um, want to jump ahead to Chapter 8, the, the miracle of the gathering demoniac. We have a lot of people that are aware of that in three different Gospels. I want to jump to page 50, and you say uh, in the book, several questions that people often uh, have about this exchange with Jesus and this demon-possessed man. Why did Jesus have a discussion with legion, which means many demons, and then transfer the legion to the pigs? Why did he just not cure the man and leave it at that? I would love to hear your thoughts so that you could share with our audience. I have loved to share my thoughts because this is really the, the crux of it. And, you know, as I would discuss this with my father, even before I wrote the book, he would always tell me that, you know, Raggy, this is, that this is kind of the key. Right here, this is the key, if there's any key. Because hmm. whenever I told people about this book, or I had people read the book ahead of time, they would, they would hone right in on this. <laughs> what about Legion? What about t- the pigs? Mm-hmm. So, answer, why? I use, a, I use an, um, another story to explain this. There was one story, I forget now exactly which, which, which book and chapter and verse, in which Jesus uh, gave sight to a blind man. He did that several times, but... Mm-hmm. In one particular story, he, he either spit on clay or spit in eyes or touched his eyes or whatever. And at first, the person opened his eyes and saw men walking around as trees. And so Jesus, again, did one other thing a second time, asked the man to open his eyes. He opened his eyes, and he could see completely clear. Are you still there, Dr. Gerges? Oh, I think we got cut off. We're going to try to reconnect with him. What What's fascinating about what Dr. Ragi Gerges just shared um, I've always wondered why, why was Jesus having to, or not having to, he obviously allowed the man not to be healed, healed from his blindness, and he was seeing blurry and seeing men walk around like trees. So it's fascinating that he did it a second time or touched his eyes. It's just really interesting to me. So that chapter, by the way, if you're listening, and we're trying to reconnect with Dr. Gerges, we may extend this um, segment of the podcast because we lost connection. Uh, chapter 8 is called The Miracle of the Gadarene Demoniac. And you can find it in Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, and Matthew chapter 8. And uh, we're going to hopefully connect with him, get his further explanation of that. I find that to be fascinating. And I don't know if there's another point in the Gospels where Jesus went to touch someone or heal someone or spoke in power in one of his miracles. And the the result didn't happen immediately. In other words, that the person wasn't healed immediately. So in that case that he just referred to, he uh, said, can you see anything? Because he was healing a blind man, right? And I remember that. I believe it's in the Gospel of Mark where the the blind man says, "Uh, I see uh, 
people, what I think are people walking around, but they look like trees. <laughs> and then uh, there's another question. Did he, what did, how did he know what trees looked like if, if he had never seen before? And that, of course, you know, you can picture uh, someone who's blind going up to a tree and just feeling from the stump up the bark and maybe the branches, maybe the leaves. And so they knew how a tree looked or how big a tree was. And um, so that's what the man said, you know, probably I see men, but they look like trees or walking around like trees. We're going to take a break. We've got a couple more chapters I want to touch on with Dr. Gerges. And again, he's uh, such a blessing to have him with us this morning, a psychiatrist over at Columbia University. And he's written this book. We'll put the link in the podcast notes. We'll take a break, try to reconnect, and we'll be right back on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Uh, we have reconnected with Dr. Ragi Gerges. Uh, over at uh, Columbia University, an associate perse- professor of clinical psychiatry. Dr. Gerges, uh, we don't know what happened w- w- with the phone line. It, it doesn't matter, but I'm glad to get you back on because we were in the middle of a very important discussion about what happened in a couple of the Gospels, Luke 8, Mark 5, Matthew 8, about the miracle of the Gadarene demoniac where he had many demons. They called him Legion. And when Jesus sent the demons into the pigs, and you were explaining how uh, it was— you were using the uh, healing of a blind man. And what I was saying when we got cut off, I was saying that is very fascinating to me because I don't remember any other healing or miracle that Jesus did where he took a second run at it. In other words, the blind man said, I see people walking around, but they look like trees. And so Jesus had to do something again. So I'll let you pick it up from there. Sure. Thank you. And I think it's ironic how when you know, we agree that we were getting to the, the crux of the book, and the crux of our discussion, you know, the, uh, we had some technical difficulties. Yep. So, anyway, the point is, is that we are, you know, we are weak as human beings. We, we can't just believe things, you know. There is something called the general revelation of God in Jesus Christ that is not enough for us. We need to see things, we need to touch things, mm. we need to hear things, taste, etc., so Jesus healed this man in a two-step process to make us, to, to just reinforce that he was, he was the one healing this person. He, had, he spoke with Legion and transferred Legion to the pigs and had the pigs run into the lake mm-hmm. so that we would not be able to, you know, think otherwise uh, other than that he was the one who was doing the healing. It's not about whether the person was demon-possessed or mentally ill. Even That's even not the most important thing. Hmm. The reason he put legion into the pigs is so we would believe. The reason Jesus came to to, to earth and was and, and allowed himself to be crucified and raised from the dead was so we could believe. He didn't have to do that. There's no reason for him to do that. That was for us and for our, for our disbelief. Well, what's fascinating about that account, and I'm looking over at Luke's version of it uh, in uh, verse 33 in Luke chapter uh, 4, I believe, uh, he cried out with a loud voice, the demon did, or the legion, or the demon that Jesus, Jesus was speaking to, and he said, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And of course, at that time, Jesus rebuked him because it wasn't his time to be revealed as Messiah yet. I find that to be a fascinating exchange uh, before he uh, was able to uh, heal the men. Very fascinating. Uh, also consistent with someone who has serious mental illness, scream out, be belligerent, say things that are inappropriate, all would have been expected. Whether Jesus also used this opportunity to proclaim his, his, his godliness, I, I can't say for sure, but that's a very interesting component of the story. Would you say uh, there are people that are demon-possessed or today, or are they just oppressed? And also, is there such a thing as an exorcism, um, like we're looking at Mark 1 and Luke 4 now, the miracle of the exorcism at the synagogue in Capernaum. So today, I mean, we hear these, you know, the horror st- movies, right, that put out these dramatic exorcisms. It, are those really happening today, or is that actually a, a real thing, or are we not getting all the information? Thank you for the question. I'll answer that in two parts. The first part is, as I was advised by a number of people 
is that, you know, I, I don't want people to think that this is going to determine whether or not the Christian are believing exorcisms or not, or demon possession in the, you know, most kind of black and white sense or not. Won't make a difference in terms of whether people are Christian or not. Christianity is about the crucifixion, the resurrection, forgiving sins. The Bible is written from a, a pre-enlightenment narrative, and it's understood that way. Pre-enlightenment means they didn't understand, you know, they really didn't have much science. They didn't understand medicine. They didn't know what schizophrenia was. So they used language such as demons and exorcisms, and they described everything in the context of spirituality. Jesus, of course, knew everything, and he would have known whether someone was had schizophrenia or had some other condition going on, but he couldn't use the word schizophrenia. It hadn't been invented yet. So he used the language of the time. We benefit from a post-enlightenment perspective. We we know science and medicine, and so we understand that, you know. I think it just cut out again, and we don't know why. And I'm so disappointed. You want to try back one more time? We'll see if we can reconnect with Dr. Ragi Gurgis. Um, I'm sorry, friends. Uh, the, the book, again, is called On Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry. Exploring Mental Illness in the Bible, and it's on Amazon, it's at Goodreads, and the publisher is WIPF, Whipf and Stock. And so it's a very short book in terms of modern-day uh, books, especially on the topic that we're discussing today. It's about 112 pages. We don't know what happened, but, um, boy, there's a couple questions I really wanted to get to. Is suicide a sin is one of the questions I wanted to ask him, and him being a psychiatrist uh, and a Christian, at uh, he's at Columbia University, which must be a difficult environment for a Christian uh, in any major university today. But I was going to ask him as a person of faith uh, if it's possible to be mentally healthy and still hear voices or believe that God speaks to you. Are you there, Dr. Gerges? I'm here. Okay, I had jumped ahead because I was, I was telling everybody um, what I wanted to ask you, and I'm glad we reconnected. Two things I just shared with our listeners today. Two things, and you can get to them in either order, is suicide a sin? And the other one, uh, being a Christian and a psychiatrist, and probably in a very um, anti-Christian environment, the major universities today are generally not as tolerant toward people of faith, towards Christians. Uh, do you think, as a person of faith, it's possible— we're talking about hearing voices, right? To be mentally healthy and still believe that God speaks to you. Can you clarify that for us? Sure, thank you. I'll start with the, uh, I guess I'll start with the latter about the voices. This is actually part of the epilogue of my book. The voices that people with schizophrenia and other mental illnesses experience are much different than, you know, the quote-unquote voices that believers feel. Often when people are praying in deep meditation, you know, they, quote-unquote, again, hear God speaking with them. There's a big difference between those sorts of, you know, again, quote-unquote, voices and what people with mental illness experience. The voices that people with mental illness experience are responsive to treatment. They're associated with other symptoms, severe functional decline, etc. They occur only in a certain period of life. They're not limited to, you know, prayer experiences. So they're, they're very different, and mm -hmm. it's okay to have a great, deep experience with God when one's meditating or praying. So they're completely different. In terms of suicide, uh, whether or not suicide is a sin, I, you know, I'm not going to necessarily comment on that because that can also become very political. But from a, from a religious perspective, I'll just go f straight from the religious perspective. Mm -hmm. From the religious perspective, and I've heard a few people comment on this, you know, we, we are sinning all the time. We are not saved by our good deeds. Amen. We are, and we are saved. We are sinning from the moment we're born to the moment we die. So, regardless of whether suicide is a sin or not, we're saved by grace. We're saved by our belief. And uh, so, I, I hope that's that's helpful in that regard. But from a Christian perspective, it almost it almost doesn't matter. We're sinning all the time. Right. Everything could be a sin. We're saved by grace and our belief in God. And uh, anyone who sins, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, we often get into the debate over once saved, always saved. And that would kind of be an extension of, well, I know you can go to God and get your sins forgiven when you sin, but if taking your own life is a sin, how do you get forgiveness for that? You know what I mean? So people get into this, and you can go around in circles on this. So I, I appreciate your answer on that, not definitive, but just the fact that God is sovereign and gracious, and uh, we just need to be about um, confessing our sins when we are aware of them. Uh, what, something I alluded to a minute ago, and I've been talking to 
a college professor here locally who j just recently was having, I don't know if it was the administration at the college or the faculty, really kind of um, discriminating against him because of his Christian faith. I'll, I'll just be very flat out honest. And I, I hear stories of this, and this discourages teachers. And I know in science, it discourages Christian scientists who go into that profession and want to research science in the medical field and in your field, psychiatry. Um, I just wanted to ask you, is it, how hard is it to be a, a believer in Christ and to live out your faith, not only in a field like psychiatry, but also in academic and, and you know, higher education, an academic setting? This is an amazing question. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're I, will say, I will say two things. I love <laughs> the question. I will say two things, you know, from, from each perspective. From the academic perspective, you know, there, there actually are, even, even at Columbia, I mean, I think there are a lot of pretty religious people, uh, you know, Christian or otherwise. I think the difference, I haven't, I haven't felt singled out or... or Good. Or you know, um, discriminated against in any way, of course. Good. Uh, but you know, I think people should keep you know. In, in general, I think religion is something that's considered to be you know personal, and in general, in a professional, in a professional context, you know, it's it's okay for people to keep their personal lives to themselves. You know, I'm not a uh, my gift is not and my talent is not evangelism and preaching. I, I'm a psychiatrist and mm -hmm. I'm a scientist mm -hmm. and that that's okay. I can still be a Christian. I certainly am a Christian, but you know, at work I'm a psychiatrist and that's okay. I think the issue may be less about people being discriminated because they're Christian, but maybe more they speak too much about their personal life. Uh, and I, 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 that's, I, I discourage that in general when I mentor younger people about just, you know, personal life and, and religion and, in the, in the workplace. Uh, so, um, I certainly don't hide that I'm Christian, though, of course not. Now, f from the other perspective, in terms of, you know, just being a Christian and going into science in general, uh, from the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective, as I said before, I kind of, this is kind of my, this is just kind of what I say, but uh, God created science. Mm -hmm. God created medicine. God created math. So, there is no dialectic between, in this case, Christianity, I was going to say religion, but in this case, Christianity and science and psychiatry and medicine. And there shouldn't be. And I think people maybe just need to, you know, think about their perspective on these things. That, again, this is my own perspective, and I, you know, this is, this is anecdotal. I've never had any problems with it. There's been no dialectic or conflict or, or what have you between my religious beliefs and, and psychiatry or medicine or science. One of the most fascinating people, I know we only have uh, two or three more minutes left with you, and thank you for spending the whole hour with us. Um, one of my, the most fascinating people, in my view, in this uh, realm when we talk about science, is Isaac Newton, who uh, wrote so much more about the Bible and Daniel and Revelation than he even did about science. And it's when you talk about the papers he wrote, and his research, and I believe from what my understanding, and maybe you are familiar with his work as well, that he set out to confirm the Bible in his research of science. He believed the Bible was the starting point. Your thoughts on that, Dr. Gerges? Oh, I would agree, and I, I think we can even be very concrete about it. There are many examples of science in the Bible. The Bible indicated that the earth was round before we realized that. The mm. Bible... And I actually, this is in the book, the Bible explained the process of evaporation and whatnot before we understood these types of things. So, I mean, but yeah, there's no doubt about that. Thank you again so much for your time. I really want to send people to the site. The book just came out this year, and it's called very, very readable book and very applicable to the characters in the Bible and what they experienced in the context of mental illness on Satan, Demons, and Psychiatry. Dr. Ragi Gurgis, thank you so much for being with us today on Stand Up for the Truth. God bless you. Thank you, David. It was really a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. And when we come back, we'll uh, let you know our guests the rest of this week, and we'll look into next week as well. Stand Up for the Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. Tomorrow, we are blessed to have back Dr. Gary Gilley. He's a pastor 
in Illinois. He's got a brand new book out on growing in Christ, uh, talking about the foundations for Christian maturity. Can't wait to talk to Gary Gilly again tomorrow. And then, we've got a few more minutes, so I'm not in a hurry at the end of this podcast here. Uh, Monday, glad to have Elijah Abraham back with us. Uh, be praying for him and his health. Um, and, he, of course, any of our pastor and author guests, many of them are speakers and they're unable to travel still because of the apparent COVID-19 restrictions, which is amazing when you see all the activity and the hundreds and thousands of people rioting in different streets and protesting across the country. Um, and then church is still limited, but oh, okay, anyway, we'll get on with the countdown. Um, next Tuesday, I'm, I'm looking at Alex McFarland. We haven't had him on in a while. He's a great apologist, and uh, he's got another good book out. Um, anyway, we've got a couple more minutes. Okay, good. I did want to pick up uh, just a few articles that I was going to get into sooner, but um, just wanted to share with you some things. The CDC has apparently confirmed now an extremely low COVID-19 death rate, which is fascinating that uh, this information is coming out now. Um, They just came out with a report that should be the narrative to the political class, and yet it will go into the thick pile of vital data and information about the virus that's not getting out to the public. The overall death rate for COVID-19, and uh, the number apparently is 0.26. Officials estimate a 0.4 fatality rate among those who are symptomatic and project a 35% rate of asymptomatic cases among those who are infected. So, in other words, this drops the overall fatality rate of COVID-19 to just 0.26%. So almost exactly where Stanford researchers pegged it a month ago, which is interesting over at Stanford. Maybe um, uh, we can look to them for more accurate information than the media. Um, also, I don't have time to get into the um, what the Bible says about racism. I really wanted to go through that today. We're going to have to do that another time. Uh, perhaps at the end of tomorrow's uh, podcast in the the third segment. Um, We did put up a blog post today, and I really would like you to check it out. It's over at StandUpForTheTruth.com, and it's called The Biblical Worldview on Racism, Chaos, Division, and Redemption. Because remember, it all... If we as Christians are looking at the Bible and reading it clearly and our foundation is on him, it all points to Jesus, right, as our Redeemer and the Healer, the only one we have hope in, the only one who can bring true peace into this chaos and into the destruction, the mayhem that we're seeing across the country in different places. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus because he is going to return, and that's where our ultimate hope is. So friends, I know it's hard. Take in the information, a little bit of news. Don't be ignorant about what's happening, but look up and as we await that blessed hope and the great appearing of Jesus, who is our great God and Savior. There's your encouragement to take throughout the rest of this day. Well, thank you again for tuning in. We'll put this link to the book today in the podcast notes. And as always, God bless you. Fear not. And keep speaking the truth about things that matter.